You're listening to Love, Maine Radio with Dr. Lisa Belisle, recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a physician trained in family and preventative medicine, acupuncture, and public health. She offers medical care and acupuncture at Brunswick Family Medicine. Read more about her integrative approach to wellness in Maine Magazine. Love, Maine Radio is available for download free on iTunes. See the Love, Maine Radio Facebook page or www.lovemainradio.com for details. Now here are a few highlights from this week's program. At the end of the day, we have to remember we're there to really take care of our patients and give them the best quality care and make them as healthy as we can be. And we can't get too wrapped up and too focused in clicking the right boxes and and get disengaged from that. I think people need to really understand what the effect of chronic stress is on their body because I think that's a little underappreciated. Everybody knows stress is bad, but I think the actual effects of that chronic activation and how that promotes clotting and how that may promote atherosclerosis, I think if people know what that's doing to their body, then they may be a little bit more proactive in, in, in trying to manage that as best they can. Love, Maine Radio is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Harding Lee Smith of The Rooms, and Bangor Savings Bank. This is Dr. Lisa Belisle, and you are listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 173 airing for the first time on Sunday, January 4th, 2015. Today's theme is Maine Wellness 2015. Maine Magazine begins each new year with a focus on wellness. We know that health and happiness are interwoven, and we wish both for our readers. Today, we speak with Dr. Lisa Ryan, pediatrician and president of the Maine Medical Association, and Mercy Hospital head cardiologist, Dr. Craig Brett, about the ways in which they approach wellness with patients. Jumpstart your health in 2015 by listening in to our inspiring conversations. Thank you so much for joining us. It's fun for me to spend time talking with um, other Dr. Lisa's. As Dr. Lisa Belial, I get to interview today Dr. Lisa Ryan, who is a pediatrician at Bridgeton Hospital, which is part of the Central Maine Medical Central Maine Healthcare family. But also, she is the president of the Maine Medical Association and the mother of two children. So she's a busy woman, but we're really privileged to have her to talk to us today about some of the issues that I know that she and I both find. Um, fascinating and important as to the state of medicine today. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. Lisa, you've been doing a lot of work with what we call organized medicine for quite a while. And organized medicine is kind of going beyond clinical practice where you're seeing patients. And it is spending time meeting with other doctors, meeting with administrators, um, trying to understand what patient needs um, are, trying to really reach out into the community and into the medical system at large and, and influence change. Uh, when I was in my residency, I got interested in working with the American Academy of Pediatrics and was able to take a leadership role within our state chapter and then within our district area, which was all of New England. And I really got to um, see a little bit more about how organized medicine works. 
And it was a great experience. I loved it. Um, I made a lot of connections in New England. So after my residency, I moved to New Hampshire. I did my residency in Burlington, Vermont. And in New Hampshire, was able to really get involved with New Hampshire Pediatric Society uh, with doing some legislative work and sitting on their legislative committee. Was there for a few years and then sort of migrated to Maine and um, once again continued to be involved with the state chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics and then became involved with the Maine Medical Association. So it's been a continuum really since residency training and I find it fascinating and interesting and really an important part of medicine aside from just patient care. Um, so it's been a wonderful experience and and it takes time and it's worthwhile. It's definitely worth it. Having gone from the um, the specialty organized medicine, you know, which is the American Academy of Pediatrics, to the main medical association, which is basically the American Medical Association, which is more generalized, representing physicians and healthcare providers, what are you seeing as the differences? There's not really a lot of difference. I think in general, um, a lot of these organizations, both on a state level or on a national level, really are have the same goals in terms of supporting physicians, supporting their members, um, improving quality, and improving health of, of patients. I think I find the similarities are much more common than the, than the dissimilarities, really. As a, as a doctor, I understand why it would be important to have these groups. As a patient, why is it important to know that our doctors are working um, in an organized way towards bettering medicine? Well, I think that the organizations um, hold a certain level of accountability for the profession, and most of the organizations look to policy, look at research, really try to guide medicine in terms of best principles and best practices. And I think it's important for physicians to be involved uh, with organized medicine. It's sort of the mothership, if you will, that really um, is out there for our profession. Um, and I think as an individual, and I hear this a lot in my experience with organized medicine, Individuals will say, well, what do they do for me? How do they know what I want? Um, and I think it's important that my sense is that the leaders in these organizations really want to know what the individual physicians are struggling with and dealing with and how the organizations can help them. So I see it really as a two-way street, and I see it important to really make those connections. Um, and there are people in every community that are involved in some degree with organized medicine, and I would encourage physicians to really think about touching base with those physicians that are involved to get their word known. So patients benefit from having providers part of um, organized medicine because it creates a higher quality of care, it creates um, sort of an oversight of the profession, um, and it really, and I guess the term organized, it really is a good one because I think for many years, doctors were able to all act independently um, as they cared for their communities. And increasingly, we are connected 
and to have some sense that what you call best practices or best principles. So if I'm, a, I have, I come in to see you as a pediatrician, and my child has some sort of a respiratory illness, you can say to me, "Well, your child probably doesn't need antibiotics. You know, the best practices are that we actually give you your child some supportive care and not go to antibiotics." So it's that sort of thing that we're actually paying attention on a bigger level to the types of things that influence not only our patients and our families, but also the communities and public health. Definitely. It's been an interesting thing to see how physicians respond to what has happened in medicine. And I think it would have been easy for you as a doctor to just sort of hunker down, do your work. You know, you have a you have children who are in high school now. So, you know, get your job done, put them through college. It's just a job. But instead, you've really continued to look at this as a profession and one that you have a lot of, um, you're very gratified by. What keeps you excited and motivated um, to be in medicine and to work at things on this higher level? I think that's a great point and something I've really thought about as I assume this role of president for the Medical Association. And I had mentioned I, I came across a document several months ago um, that really I've embraced. It's really influenced me in my thought process. And it's very along the lines of what you were talking about in terms of, of the profession and, and finding some excitement and some passion and some and some energy. My sense is as I travel around, as I meet with fellow physicians, I, I am um, sensing a lot of dissatisfaction. I think a lot of physicians are frustrated by what's happening with healthcare and all the changes that are happening and the onus that they feel is put upon them, not only to take care of patients, which I think all of us feel like we've always done a good job at that, but now there's much more accountability along those lines. And this um, document I came across, it was actually published in the Annals of Internal Medicine 12 years ago. And I find it so relevant today and wonder why I haven't seen it for the past 12 years. And it's, it's called Medical Professionalism in the New Millennium, a Physician Charter. And it really looks to all of the changes and understanding the pressures that are going on right now with healthcare and trying to step back and remember three basic principles involved. The first principle is, is patient welfare, and that's really, I think, what we all went into medicine for, is that we wanted to take good care of our patients. The second principle in the charter is looking at uh, patient autonomy, and I think that's a relatively new phenomenon in medicine, away from the days of the doctor tells the patient what to do and the patient says okay and does it. I think we much more want to engage patients now in their health care. It's their health care. They need to be engaged. They need to be a part of that. We as healthcare providers need to talk to them about what their disease process is, um, how to maintain wellness, talk about options that are out there, and really engage them to be partners in that healthcare. And the third principle of this charter is really social justice. And I think I hadn't necessarily thought about that a lot in the past, but it really is an obligation, I think, of our profession and of ourselves individually to make sure that there's equity in healthcare and that everyone is getting the same quality and the same level of healthcare. So this um, document has really, in, in essence, re-energized me and my passion for medicine and make, made me take a step back and say, wait a second, you know, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. This is what brings me passion. Um, 
and take that step back and say, okay, you know, refocus and re-energize. Because we all fall under the pressure sometimes when we're overtired and we're stressors in our lives and stressors in our work, um, that it's hard to remember. So I've, I've found this, this I carry it around with me everywhere. Well, I think that's, a, that's really important is to know what some of your core values are, because this is something that we can get very distracted away from. We can get so um, so focused on, I have you know 20 patients to see today, 30 patients to see today. How do I just make it through the list to get everybody happy and try to move them towards um, health? But instead, if you can really be thinking in the in the bigger, in the grander scheme of things, um, is what I'm doing actually heading in the direction of um, social justice, making patients more autonomous? And the third one is is basically just patient welfare and patient, patient welfare, health, health and well-being. Yeah. So if you can be thinking of all of those things, then it gives a sort of bigger purpose to the work that you're doing. And isn't that really what all of us need is some bigger purpose to the work that we do in our lives? As a as a patient, what types of things um, can I do to create my to create a better relationship with my physician? If I'm looking to change providers, for example, um, or establish care with a new doctor, or in your case, um, as a pediatrician, you interact a lot with parents. So, what are some of the things that I can do to create a good relationship with my provider, um, who might be a nurse practitioner, who might be a physician assistant? What are some of the questions I can ask? Um, how can how can patients, from their their standpoint, foster that that all of those principles that you just mentioned? I think it's really important for parents and for patients to feel that they can talk to their provider. Um, as I've been around to different practices and different practice settings, I hear a lot uh, from physicians that uh, that they don't feel like their patients talk to them and tell them about their concerns. But I think on the same flip side is we as physicians need to change our mindset and change our thoughts with how we walk into a practice and how we walk into an office visit. And I think, you know, for us to take the time and and just say, which I've started to do even more so in my practice, what's what's really what are you worried about? What's really bothering you? I mean, we have to engage in those conversations and I would uh, hope that patients um, take more of that um, responsibility for themselves to feel that they can talk to their physician or their healthcare provider about what they're really worried about. And I get the sense that a lot, that that's a, a, a different mind shift for a lot of patients. I think it's so important. I think it's so important to have a conversation, not somebody telling you what to do and what's going on. I think when you walk in to, to meet someone, um, you're interviewing someone as a, as a patient, I really believe in that gut sense of your feeling and your gestalt for a person is really important. We've all had those experiences in different aspects where I, you s- reflect and say, something just didn't sit well with me, and I should have gone with that. And I think that's really important, um, your level of comfort, your level of ease with not only the healthcare provider, but really the setting they're in, the environment they're in, how their staff seems. I think that's all important to say, is this a place I feel welcome? Is this a place I feel safe? Is this a place I feel comfortable? Here on Love, Maine Radio, we've long recognized the link between health and wealth. Here to speak more on the topic is Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. Making peace with your finances is easier said 
than done. We have spent a lifetime being programmed by our beliefs and behaviors interacting with our inherited nature. Making peace with all of that is one of the biggest steps forward you can take. It's a step that can certainly remove a lot of anxiety from your life. Consider this scenario that a lot of us have gone through, or that you may be going through right now. You have money to support yourself and your family, but it's not always there at the right time, or you don't believe that you can access it. That happened to me recently, and also in a big way in 2008. Like you, I have experienced these financial highs and lows. It feels as though you're on some kind of a strange roller coaster, and that you're constantly wrestling with what you want versus what you need. You've got bills and really want to pay them off. You're sort of living in the past so you can move forward. Finding peace in the middle of our culture can make it difficult to make good financial decisions, especially if you're waiting for the other shoe to drop. The first step is to stop and breathe. Look around. Walk around. Talk to people. Trade and commerce are going to happen. Money is what makes it easier. Like Shepherd Financial on Facebook, and we will help you evolve with your money peacefully. Securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. Investment advice offered through Flagship Harbor Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Flagship Harbor Advisors and Shepherd Financial are separate entities from LPL Financial. Love Main Radio was brought to you by Bangor Savings Bank. For over 150 years, Bangor Savings has believed in the innate ability of the people of Maine to achieve their goals and dreams. Whether it's personal finance, business banking, or wealth management assistance you're looking for, at Bangor Savings Bank, you matter more. For more information, visit www.bangor.com. What about cost? I know that quality has been an important uh, piece for you and that you've done project w- uh, a project with Maine Quality Counts and I believe Consumer Reports has somehow gotten involved in questions that we should be all, um, patients should be asking their doctors, really. What, what's your take on these things? There are the five questions is, is the, is the uh, Consumer Reports uh, Quality Counts message about do you really need a test or procedure? Are there other alternatives, other options? What happens if I don't do that test or take that medicine or do that procedure? Uh, what are complications and side effects if I do? And, and how much does that cost? And I think cost is important. We've all sort of shied away from cost over the years, but we know in this country our healthcare costs are astronomical. It really can't continue the way it has. Um, and I think it's important. Those are important questions. And I work for a system. It's difficult to get the answers. I know they're looking at finding the answers. And I'm hoping to at least get some of that paperwork to start to begin to look at it. Um, and I don't have the answers all the time for patients when they come in the office right now. But I think it's my job to be able to guide them and steer them to the places that they could get the answers to those questions. And it's important. A lot of families have very high deductible insurance plans now. And cost is a huge issue. I agree. And I I, I when I was in private practice, I knew how much 
I charged for a patient visit. I knew how much we would bill to the insurance. I knew how much we were likely to get back from an insurance plan. Um, and I had a sense from, you know, having investigated this, how much it would cost to order a cholesterol test or an X-ray or an MRI. I think it's gotten more and more cloudy as time has gone on, and especially working within a healthcare system, it can be very confusing. You know, there are different there are things called facility charges, which are now added into patient visits, and the clearer we can be the, to ourselves as to how much things are going to cost, the better off everybody's going to be. Because there's nothing worse than being a patient who gets a bill for a test that they really weren't sure they needed to have in the first place and have it be so high that they never want to go back and see their doctor again because that trust is broken. I'm thinking about all the changes in medicine that uh, we've we've had to embrace and all the actually all the good things that have come out of things like technology and electronic medical records, and really this idea of justice. Um, And part of justice is public health. It's the ability to care for people as part of a population, you know, make sure that people are immunized against measles, mumps, and rubella, and make sure that um, people aren't being exposed to other infectious problems. So how about public health? Tell me how you feel about um, what we've been doing in public health over the last 10 to 15 years. Well, I think I agree wholeheartedly. Um, And I think um, the healthier an individual is, and you had mentioned communities, I think it's so important. Um, You know, public health is, um, is so important. And I think that you know, we as healthcare providers are really at the forefront to help educate our families and our patients about the importance of public health. And I mean, we certainly can see over time the amazing advancements in things like infectious disease, for example. I think right now everyone's really worried about Ebola and and worried about the enterovirus. And there are things like that that um, catch our awareness and our attention in a much more acute situation. And I think that I talk to patients in the office that there are hundreds of enteroviruses. You know, when we talk about the risk and and what we look for is not any different for this particular virus. It's the things that we always look for with respiratory infections and things that you're worried about and things that I'm worried about. So I think I'm, I've been involved with um, the school health program in our di- in my school district and really looking at population health. I think we don't always think of that on an individual provider level. I think we all probably contribute to it without really realizing how much we contribute to it. And I know the Public Health Committee of the Maine Medical Association is as uh, probably one of the most active committees within our organization who really embrace public health and looking at all aspects and how that affects Maine citizens. So I think we all do it. I think we don't always consciously understand how much of a role we have in that. We had Gordon Smith on the show, I think a couple of years ago now. He's the executive director of the Maine Medical Association. And I was impressed with how the Medical Association has needed to change its its focus, change the way that it outreaches. What are some of the things that the Medical Association has asked you to champion as the president this next year? Well, I think there's not the issue of championing, championing anything that I get from the Medical Association and from the leadership. I think um, it's more on an individual basis, sort of what you're passionate about and what your um, vision and what your 
hope is for your term as president. Uh, I really feel strongly about physician wellness, physician burnout, physician dissatisfaction. And I think as a medical association, we really need to remember that uh, what we do is taking care of, of our physicians and our healthcare providers and, and the quality piece and the patient, you know, improving the health of Maine citizens. And I think we have to remember uh, my goal, my vision, is to really hear from members, to try to re-energize members who are feeling dissatisfaction and frustration. I think part of that comes from education and looking at how we have to function now within all these changes in terms of quality documentation, in terms of accountability, in terms of continuing medical education. I think as an organization, we need to be able to support physicians and have answers and resources for them. We are trying to get out. We've done a couple of what we call listening sessions. We've done one in the Portland area and one in the Bangor area where it's a social event and we invite physicians and healthcare providers in the community. I've been to the one in the Portland area. We have one coming up next week in the Lewiston Auburn area. And it's been it's been great. We've just started this, but I see physicians that I would never see. They don't come to meetings. They're not on our committees. These are physicians out there in the trenches taking care of patients. And we really get to interact as leadership of the organization to see what concerns they have, what things they're worried about, what they're wondering about. And my hope is to really get out there and, and be out there for physicians to really get a, a handle on what's going on, what their concerns are, what their joys and what their satisfactions and what their and their accomplishments are also, and really sort of try to energize um, the healthcare providers. Because you had mentioned it, we're faced with an onslaught of um, requirements and boxes to check and, and different things like that to hold accountable for. But I think at the end of the day, we have to remember, you know, we're there to really take care of our patients and give them the best quality care and make them as healthy as we can be. And we can't get too wrapped up and too focused in clicking the right boxes and and get disengaged from that. Something keeps coming up for me that I think comes up in many of the shows that we do and that in the end, it really is all about relationships. And when I'm sitting with a patient, um, I want to be able to work with that person um, and really in a team, as you've suggested, not just me, but the other people who work in my office and this patient and this patient's family. And I want to have a positive relationship. I don't want a patient to come in and feel like they have to be defensive because that's the, that seems really that seems like a harsh term. But sometimes I, I know that when I'm sitting with people, I am getting the entire medical I, I am representative of all of the doctors that have ever done poorly for the patients who come through the door. And that's a, that's a heavy burden for me to lift. I would prefer to have somebody come through the door and sit with them and say, you know, I'm on your side. Let's see if we can build this relationship together. I completely understand that you've had difficulties in the past with the medical system at large or maybe your particular doctor. But let's see where we can start as human beings, you know, and start with the human level and really understand it that way. It sounds like this is something that you encourage as well. Definitely. I get to do that. It's the nice thing about being a pediatrician because I just oftentimes, especially with newborn babies, I'm starting that relationship for the first time with families and with children. And I've been there long enough now that I'm starting to see the children of the children. Um, and it's just, it's great to be in a community. It's great to have that relationship. 
I don't always make people happy. I understand that. And that's part of human nature. But I think really having that conversation and not feeling like you as a, as a healthcare provider have to justify the system or justify what's happened to somebody in the past, but to acknowledge that there were issues and there were problems and things that you weren't happy with, and how can we move forward and make this a better relationship than what you've had in the past? I think that's crucial. Lisa, how can people find out about the Maine Medical Association? Uh, there, We have a wonderful website, um, mainemedical.com. Uh, you can Google it and... Uh, there's lots of information about the Medical Association, about all the different committees and all the activities and all the things that are going on within the Medical Association. Uh, they are located, the office is located in Manchester. And, um, you know, I certainly, as president this year, encourage anyone to really reach out to me. I want to hear from the members, I want to hear from healthcare providers. I do encourage people to find out what the Medical Association is doing if you are a healthcare provider or a patient. It's still, it's a very worthwhile organization. Um, and also reach out to Dr. Lisa Ryan, who is a pediatrician at Bridgeton Hospital and the president of the Maine Medical Association. Thanks so much for coming in and talking to us about what's going on in healthcare and for being part of Love Maine Radio. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, and it's always a pleasure to meet with you and talk to you about things again. So I, I'm thrilled to be here, and thank you so much. As a physician and small business owner, I rely on Marcy Booth from Booth, Maine, to help me with my own business and to help me live my own life fully. Here are a few thoughts from Marcy. I can't imagine that I will ever be an artist. While I appreciate all kinds of art, I know that creating it is just something I'm not able to do. I don't have that kind of talent, and I find myself in awe of the people who do, realizing that all of us have different and unique abilities, and that we can't be good at everything is a tough thing to admit. It's a lesson I teach my children, but it's a lesson we all need to remind ourselves of as adults. Recognizing your strengths and talents early are keys to happiness and success and leveraging those talents that others have is another key to a success. So while I may never have a gallery exhibition of my artwork, I find great joy in knowing that what I and my entire team have is the talent to help businesses run better. We are the leverage an entrepreneur needs to be successful. I'm Marcy Booth. Let's talk about the changes you need. BoothMaine.com this segment of Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by the following generous sponsors. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage in Yarmouth, Maine. Honesty and integrity can take you home. With Remax Heritage, it's your move. Learn more at rheritage.com. Love, Maine Radio is all about loving Maine. But we can't really think about loving Maine if we don't think about loving ourselves and really our hearts. So today we have with us Dr. Craig Brett, who is the head of cardiology at Mercy Hospital. And he's also the subject of an article that I wrote for the wellness issue of Maine Magazine in January. Thanks so much for coming in and talking to us today. Thank you, Lisa. Craig, you and I have some similar backgrounds. Uh, we both went to the University of Vermont. Um, we both have children who are roughly the same age. I think you have four. That's correct. And I have I have only three. Okay. So you beat me that's, on that that's, one. That's many still. Yeah, it's still yes. more than none. Yes. Um, so you're busy, and you've been living this busy life for quite a while. 
The thing that strikes me most about you, though, is that even as a busy doctor, it's it's been important for you to maintain balance. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about how it is that moving to Maine has enabled you to create a life that is one of balance between your personal life, your professional life, your family. Well, it sounds like you and I both uh, know where to, to be in the Northeast, uh, both uh, in Burlington at the University of Vermont and now in Portland, Maine. I think we, we've been to the, the nicest places in the Northeast. Um, and I think we're very fortunate that here in Maine we have the ability to, to have balance in our lives with the recreational uh, opportunities that are so nearby. Uh, we're in a fantastic medical community, uh, which was a major draw for me. And to have those two things together and uh, be able to access those with fairly low hassle, uh, what more could you ask for? You're originally from New York. That's correct. So when you decided that you were going to raise your children, what was it specifically about Maine and Cape Elizabeth, where you live, that um, caused you to understand that this would be a good place for children to grow up? Well, my children are having a very different upbringing than, than what I had uh, in uh, much, uh, I was in much more of an urban environment in New York. And um, although it was a great childhood, I think uh, what my kids have here is, is just wonderful. Um, they uh, get to see uh, their parents uh, enjoy recreational opportunities and stay healthy as a result. Um, I think they've benefited from that. I think uh, the ability to, uh, to have good schools nearby uh, and to be around people that, uh, that are motivated and, and, and want to do things with their lives has just been fantastic for them. Why did you choose to be a cardiologist? I knew early on I wanted to go into medicine, and the cardiology interest came later. And I think it was, it was looking around and realizing that the pace of change and uh, the pace of, of um, scientific information and kind of knowing the best way to treat patients was just moving really quickly in cardiology compared to some other fields. So unlike some people, perhaps, who are concerned about the pace of change, you were excited by it. Yeah, and I, not to pick on some of my other colleagues, but I just, when I look back over my, it's now almost 20 years of practice, uh, the advances in cardiology are just incredible. Um, and I'm not, sure, I'm not sure all of our other specialties have, have seen those kind of advances. And, um, you know, they're not all technological advances, although many of them are, but just basic understanding of disease processes, I think we've done pretty well in cardiology. It's also fortunate or unfortunate, I guess, that um, heart disease is the leading killer of Americans, um, American adults. So I think that more research has gone into it. We know that this is a huge problem. It's not only killing people, but it's also causing morbidity and you know long-term problems after having heart attacks and strokes and other things related to the heart. So th- this has been a benefit to your field. Well, you're right, uh, Lisa, absolutely. I mean, heart disease and stroke are the number one killer of, of men and women and lead the next three causes combined. And uh, every day, nine Mainers uh, die of heart disease. So it's clearly a major uh, health uh, problem, uh, an incredibly expensive health problem, and one that we've made some strides on. Uh, the mortality rates uh, for, for heart disease is declining, uh, but it's still a major problem. So there are various risk factors for heart disease. Um, One of them is smoking. 
I assume that that has the fact that our smoking rates have declined to a certain place, and now they've kind of leveled off, but I assume that that's had a positive impact on heart disease. No question. I think, you know, the understanding of, of the dangers of smoking and the, the impact that smoking has on on the health of blood vessels uh, that's been appreciated now for several decades uh, has led to some decline in, in the incidence of heart disease. Maine is still a pretty uh, high-smoking incidence state, though, so there's still work to be done, but, but it is better than it was in years past. And is it true that with smoking, once you stop, you actually can reverse some of the damage that um, the tobacco and the products that are in cigarettes and, toba- and tobacco products, that they, yeah, so you can reverse that damage? No question. You know, we have patients all the time who come in uh, who have had a, a cardiac event, a heart attack, say, uh, and maybe they were smokers, maybe they had other risk factors that they had some control over, like they were overweight or very sedentary. And uh, when people can change those, um, and not everybody does, but when they can, uh, you can really see that the course of this disease change. So you just mentioned another couple of risk factors for heart disease, and those would be um, weight and sedentary lifestyle. So what do we know about those? This seems to be something we have, um, we're struggling actually more with, whereas smoking rates have declined, the obesity r- rates have risen. You're absolutely right. And, and, and it, for a time, there was some controversy about whether obesity was actually a cardiac risk factor. That seems to be pretty much put to bed. It is. And the reason it is, is not just the weight that someone is carrying around, the excess weight that somebody uh, who is obese may be carrying around, but the way that that extra weight changes their metabolism. Um, So people that are obese tend to have a, a very characteristic profile um, of uh, elevation of a certain type of lipid or, or fat that's measured in the bloodstream called triglycerides. Uh, that elevation uh, also uh, causes, causes risk of plaque buildup in arteries. That obesity, um, uh, uh, the presence of obesity also results in a body's resistance to the, uh, to the effect of insulin, uh, which we know uh, can create problems in blood vessels. So there's something about the obese state that causes these other metabolic changes that, that we know are directly harmful to the blood vessels. So you're talking about um, insulin resistance, and that's really related to diabetes. So there are, there's a lot of crossover between the people who have diabetes, the people who are obese, the people who have heart disease. It must be an interesting thing for you to try to tease out how to manage all of these problems that are coexisting. Well, you know, it, th- there are several problems that coexist, as you, as you mentioned, the, you know, being obese, having high blood cholesterol, particularly these triglycerides the insulin resistance, which is the precursor of diabetes. Often their blood pressure is elevated. So it's multiple things, but it really all comes back to that profile. And and you can correct all of those things in many cases just with getting someone's uh, metabolic state back to normal by significant weight loss and exercise. It still remains the best medication we have, uh, so to speak. You're a big fan of exercise. You yourself are a cyclist, and you enjoy skate skiing on the river in Maine um, in the winters. So what do you talk to your patients about? Because not everybody is going to be a cyclist. Not everybody is going to enjoy going out in the snow. What, what, what do you suggest? You know, it, it, it's so much easier when, when you just love exercise and you miss it when you don't get it. So I think, you know, for those of us that have that temperament, it's easy. Uh, unfortunately, not everybody has that temperament. And for so many of my patients, 
exercise is just it's it's work it's it's a chore you know they have to um drag themselves to wherever they're gonna to to do their exercise activity for those people it's a real challenge um and i think you know they these are people that maybe exercise and and fitness and and doing these types of things has never been a big part of their life or maybe it was at one point and they just lost track of it and and got to a you know a physical state that didn't allow it um, uh, anymore. So for those people, it is a real challenge. And I, I don't think there's an easy answer. I think people need to find something that they like to do that burns calories, hopefully in an aerobic fashion. Um, and there's some programs of, uh, locally that, that try to promote that, uh, that we direct our patients to. Um, but it is, it is a key thing to find an activity, something that, um, uh, that will allow some fitness and hopefully weight loss for these patients. So it really is about enjoyment. You have to find something that you like to do. I think the people that are successful at it uh, enjoy the activity. I think people that where it's always a chore, always a drag, um, you know, they may do it for a while. It, it doesn't necessarily become part of their life forever, and so it's an ongoing struggle. Um, but if they can find something they like to do and do it and they get better at it and their body feels better at a certain level of that activity, then it's easy. So we've been talking about things that we enjoy when it comes to physical activity. What about when it comes to eating? That's something, you're a lipidologist, so a lipidologist is somebody who specializes in you know, the fats that are problematic for our arteries. Um, food is an interesting question these days, isn't it? There is, and, and I think you know everybody out there, you know, so many of my patients out there are, are, are confused because there's so many... Um, conflicting recommendations that come out seemingly on a on a weekly basis about what's good, what's not good. Um, you know, what um, uh, can you eat eggs? Can you eat a margarine? Is butter actually better for it? you? Know, it just goes on and on and on, and, and can be can drive people nuts. Um, and I think you know a lot of it comes back to just common sense and some and some basic you know, eat certain, certain food groups in moderation, we know for certain that saturated fats and trans fats uh, are bad. These are, these are fats that you see uh, in animal meats um, uh, predominantly. Um, so you keep that moderate. Um, we know that, um, that whole grains, we know vegetables, we know uh, the uh, most fruits uh, are, are, on the other hand, are good. And, and will lower the bad levels of the cholesterol and in some cases raise the, the, the so-called good levels of the cholesterol. Um, so, you know, these are not, these are not groundbreaking um, kind of recommendations. These really get back to, to a lot of common sense. Um, and I think nitpicking about certain elements is can you, you know, can you, you know, is, can we use, should we always use olive oil or can we sometimes use safflower oil? I think that's missing the big picture. I think, you know, a, a, a diet moderate in, in saturated fats and animal fats, predominantly um, uh, uh, consuming whole grains, fruits, vegetables, keeping, keeping animal protein, you know, you don't have to exclude it completely, but keep it moderate and try to get fish once or twice a week. You know, these are basic recommendations that are still, you know, the cornerstone of, of what we tell people. I have in my family um, people who are involved in the paleo diet, which I think doesn't have to be meat. It's definitely low carb. But I know that some people interpret the paleo diet as needing to be um, more meat because you're cutting out carbs and you need the calories and they want the protein load. So how does that impact one's heart? Do we know? I think, you know, the, the low carbohydrates, uh, excuse me, low carbohydrate diets 
definitely have their place for the right people. So people that re- that need to lose weight, that have prediabetes, that have triglycerides elevations, they, they do need to be on a low-carbohydrate diet. And you do replace those calories typically with protein and often with animal protein. And it's interesting, most people, uh, when, you, when they do that diet, if you look at their lipid profiles, they, they, they improve. Their triglycerides come down. The bad cholesterol levels don't change too much. They might change a little bit, but not too much. Um, there are some people, though, that have certain genetic um, predisposition um, uh, relating to how their liver metabolizes cholesterol, that when they go on one of these low-carbohydrate, high-protein diets, their bad cholesterol goes crazy, and it goes real high. So I think you can do these, um, you know, these low-carbohydrate diets, uh, I think, uh, uh, can be useful, but they probably should be done under some supervision and making sure at some point a lipid profile, a cholesterol profile is checked if you're going to do that. There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines, carefully prepared by experienced professionals, coupled with care and attention, focused on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled, you need attention, advice, and individual care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way it was meant to be. Experience chef and owner Harding Lee Smith's newest hit restaurant, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room, Maine seafood at its finest. Joining sister restaurants The Front Room, The Grill Room, and The Corner Room, this newly renovated two-story restaurant at 86 Commercial Street on Custom House Wharf overlooks scenic Portland Harbor. Watch lobstermen bring in the daily catch as you enjoy baked stuffed lobster, raw bar, and wood-fired flatbreads. For more information, visit www.theroomsportland.com. There are people in Maine, and this is something that you and I talk about in the article for Maine Magazine, that are genetically predisposed to having high cholesterol levels. And in fact, we had Dr. Dervilla McCann, who's doing a study um, out of Lewiston and found an, a small sort of enclave of people who have particularly high cholesterol levels. So genetics are something that we can't really avoid if we're going to metabolize things differently, um, probably po- more poorly. That is the way that it is. It's truly so. The um, you know we live in a corner of the United States that has um, a real um, spike in the instance of this genetic abnormality uh, that goes by the abbreviation FH uh, for familial hypercholesterolemia, and um, it's often seen in a French Canadian population, and it's a genetic abnormality where the liver doesn't properly clear the bad cholesterol levels. And this is an incredibly frustrating condition for people because I see people that, you know, look like you. They're fit, they're, you know, they're the proper weight, they eat right, and, and yet their, their bad cholesterol level is 300. And, um, and they are so frustrated that they can't change that with, with diet and exercise because they're already eating a prudent diet and exercising. Um, and it's terrible for them. Um, these are people that there's just no other option besides medication, unfortunately. Um, but it is treatable. And um, we see a fair number of these people up here. As a, as a lipidologist, uh, practicing in, uh, in northern New England is uh, uh, you know, especially interesting. When I go to my meetings, I think my, my colleagues are a little jealous that I see all these FH patients that, uh, that they don't have uh, to the same incidence. 
So we've talked about weight and we've talked about not smoking. We've talked about diet, sedentary lifestyle. One thing we haven't talked about is blood pressure and pulse, which isn't as much of a, a risk factor. And I want to talk about stress and the relationship between stress and blood pressure and pulse and just overall cardiac health and what we know about it now, because I think that this is shifting and it's a special interest of yours. I, I have been fascinated with the uh, the association between stress and, and heart disease for some time. And um, you know, there's so many anecdotes, but the clinical evidence is, is indisputable that people that are chronically stressed have a higher incidence of, of cardiac events than people who, who don't record chronic stressors when you, when you, when you evaluate them. Um, it's not entirely clear if chronic stress actually causes atherosclerosis, which is the name of the plaque buildup in the arteries that leads to heart attack or whether chronic stress just serves as a trigger in people who already have that problem. So, you know, just to kind of review briefly the stress response, you know, we humans benefit greatly from the ability to generate a stress response. So when you're faced with a stressor, you have a very immediate um, uh, activation of your autonomic nervous system. Your heart rate goes up, your blood pressure goes up, your blood sugar goes up, ready for fast energy. Uh, your ability to clot increases so that if you get injured uh, in this fight or flight type of state, um, you, can, you can heal quicker. Um, your body shunts blood away from kind of more elective functions like digestion and shunts blood over to the muscles, really activates the body for, for action. And as humans have evolved, this has clearly been a, a beneficial response. And even in, you know, in, a, in today's society, having that ability is, is helpful um, for, for certain, certain um, situations. The problem is when those, um, when those systems are activated chronically, like people who are just you know, stressed out of their mind and, and those systems are just constantly activated, then we see people with problems of hypertension or high blood pressure, diabetes from the high blood sugar. Uh, the propensity to clot makes one more susceptible to having a heart attack or stroke. Um, I think you know, we're all familiar with the symptoms people can have when they're chronically stressed. You know, the jittery, they may have some stomach upset, poor digestion, they're a little forgetful, uh, they may be depressed. They're just not, they're not functioning like they should when these systems are chronically activated. Um, and we see the, the, the end result of this uh, as an increased incidence of, of cardiovascular events like heart attack and stroke. I, we kind of joke at, uh, at at Mercy Cardiology where I am that we know <laughs> we know which employers uh, or which places of employment are suffering the most stress because we'll see clusters of employees come in from certain places during certain times and say oh things must be really bad over over there um, but the association is really it's 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 very clear uh, between these chronic stressors and, and events there does seem to be certain stressors that may be particularly bad. Um, uh, marital discord is a terrible stressor, chronic marital discord. Uh, it's one that's actually been studied uh, where these, uh, this activated system really can be, can be shown and, and event rates are higher. Uh, caretaker stress, uh, where you're caring for somebody who may be um, ill or disabled, you know, typically a loved one at home. Um, that generates a, a tremendous chronic stress response uh, that's quite harmful or can be quite harmful. Uh, workplace stress has been studied, uh, as, I, as I mentioned, and particularly, um, you know, folks who are in a high-demand 
low control type situation at work, uh, you can measure uh, real profound activation of their, their chronic stress systems. In our conversation, you mentioned how important you thought it was for us to work with our children and helping them to understand what stress was, what it did to them physically, and how they could mitigate the impact of stress. Because some of the things that we're asking them to do are probably more stressful than we realize. And um, use the example of kids' sports. You said this is something that we're supposed to have as a, as a stress reliever. And if you're an adult, maybe running is a stress reliever. But there's so much pressure on kids in addition to doing their schoolwork and their school play and playing the piano. And, and then you add kids' sports on top of it. So we're actually layering stress onto this, this generation that's coming up behind us. I totally agree. I mean, you know, their world, I, I have teenagers, you have teenagers. Their world can be so stressful, and I'm, I'm always amazed at how, um, you know, how my kids have to face that, and and have done okay doing that so far. But but I do worry about that, and and it is very ironic, as you point out, that you know sometimes these youth sports, which, um, you know, if done right, are an incredibly healthy um, experience for kids, but unfortunately are not done right uh, in many occasions, and and can be a tremendous stressor. Um, and, uh, you know, the kids oftentimes will need to do something, you know, completely not sport related to find their relaxation, which is, which is a little ironic, kind of opposite from what their parents, uh, you know, find they have to do. Um, but I think that's, you know, it gets back to them finding where they can center themselves, where they can, um, get to a place that, you know, that where they're not surrounded by that stress. And I think for every kid that's different. Um, but there's no question the world, the world that they are in right now is not what we had. And, and I worry about how those stressors starting at this age, um, you know, may, may accumulate into adulthood when they start becoming more at risk for, you know, for the vascular problems that we see later in life. And knowing that we as parents um, need to find our own way of dealing with stress, maybe if we're doing yoga or meditation or tai chi or qigong or something that kind of slows everything down for us, maybe our children coming up behind us can see how that would be important to integrate into their own lives. I think that kind of modeling is is, is really important. And I'm not so good at advising people what they should do to find that type of state of relaxation because it's so different for for different people um i know some of my friends like to get on a motorcycle and and go for a ride and other people would find that enormously stressful um and some people you know find find yoga or other you know um activities to be to be helpful so i I think you just have to find it yourself you have to find what what centers you and and what distracts you from all those external stressors that are that we know can be so detrimental when they're chronic any final thoughts as we head into 2015 about staying healthy? I mean, I love the fact that you're a preventive cardiologist rather than an interventional cardiologist. So you're trying to keep people in a good place before anything bad happens to their hearts. But what are some suggestions that you have for people? I think, you know, it's amazing. I, I see people every day over at Mercy who are otherwise like totally in control of their, you know, their professional life and they feel like they, you know, they're, they're all together and yet they don't know 
some of the basic um, numbers in terms of what their own risks may be for developing heart disease. So uh, I think, you know, if I could get one word of advice out there is know your numbers. You know, everybody uh, as an adult should know what their lipid profile looks like, whether they have this genetic abnormality that puts them at risk for vascular disease. Um, you should know what your blood pressure is, know what your family history is, know, know if you have a profile that you know, could really benefit from, um, from very aggressive preventive measures so that my interventional colleagues don't need to ever see them. Um, uh, I think that, you know, that continually surprises me. And then I think the other thing is, uh, as we've been talking about, I think people need to really understand what the effect of chronic stress is on their body because I, don't, I think that's a little a little um, underappreciated. Every, everybody, you know, knows stress is bad, but I think um, the actual the actual effects of that chronic activation and how that promotes clotting and how that may promote atherosclerosis. Um, I think if people know what that's doing to their body, then they may be a little bit more proactive in in, in trying to manage that as best they can. Well, Dr. Brett, I really appreciate your coming in and talking to me today. Um, obviously, as someone who cares for Maine hearts, it's important that you're um, out there doing the work that you do and keeping Maine's hearts healthy because we are Love Maine Radio, so we need to have healthy hearts so that we can keep on loving our state. Um, we've been speaking with Dr. Craig Brett, who is a cardiologist, the head cardiologist um, at Mercy Hospital. Thanks so much for coming in and being a part of our show. Thank you, Lisa. Anytime. You have been listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 173, Maine Wellness 2015. Our guests have included Dr. Lisa Ryan and Dr. Craig Brett. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com or read about them in the January issue of Maine Magazine. Love, Maine Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, Sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love, Maine Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa and see my running travel food and wellness photos as Bountiful One on Instagram. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love, Maine Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love, Maine Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. I hope that you have enjoyed our Maine Wellness 2015 show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. Love Maine Radio is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Harding Lee Smith of The Rooms, and Bangor Savings Bank. Love, Maine Radio with Dr. Lisa Belisle is recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Our executive producers are Susan Grisanti, Kevin Thomas, and Dr. Lisa Belisle. Audio production and original music by John C. McCain. Content producer is Kelly Clinton, and our online producer is Ezra Wolfinger. Love, Maine Radio is available for download free on iTunes. See the Love, Maine Radio Facebook page or go to www.lovemainradio.com for details.